Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. You know, many of the founders believe that the common good was the real ultimate purpose of ruling and exercising authority over individual self-interest. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Jet Connor discussing the radical thought of Thomas Paine. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by Rhode Island Publication Society, publishers of the new book, Revolutionary War Defenses of Rhode Island, by John K. Robertson. Available now wherever books are sold. Visit their site, ripublications.org, today. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Jet Connor. And he'll be discussing the radical evolution of Thomas Paine in the 18th century. You know, when we often study the history of the revolution, we get really lost in battles and generals and outcomes. But we often, I think, as a society, get away from those very important ideological origins of the event. I always like to tell my students that, The American Revolution is over when the Declaration of Independence is signed. Anything that comes after that, the war, is really just the defense of the revolution. Revolutions are exercises in thoughts and ideas, not exercises in howitzers and cannons and muskets. So in that regard, Thomas Paine is one of the most important figures in the history of the American Revolutionary period. And I think Jet Connor makes a pretty good case for that today. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Jet Connor. Jet Connor, welcome back. Thank you very much. It's uh, very good to be with you, and I appreciate the opportunity to uh, participate in the podcast. Jet, remind us about your background. So I'm a retired political scientist. I come at this um, revolutionary era period from that point of view, and actually my specialty was uh, political thought, American political thought. So um, I am a PhD and a uh, former college administrator as well. And since I retired in around uh, 2010 or 11, somewhere in there completely, um, I started back into doing a little bit of writing and that kind of thing that I hadn't had much of a chance to do during my career. So I live in Denver and live with my wife, Rosemary. And uh, other than that, uh, there's not much else to say. What first drew your interest into this topic? So this grew out of another article I wrote for J.A.R. back in 2015 called uh, Adams versus Payne, A Critical Debate. And it also grew out of my book that I subsequently published, uh, published with Westholm in 2018, uh, John Adams versus Thomas Paine, Rival Plans for the Early Republic. 
both of those pieces touched on partisan fights in the revolutionary era, but not much. I wanted to expand that line of investigation and Payne's role in it to see how, how such fights affected his political thinking on majority rule. Who was Thomas Paine, and what informed his worldview? Paine was born in Thetford, England, and he was the son of a Quaker father and an Anglican mother, uh, uh, and uh, somewhat of a poor family, but uh, she was a, a daughter of a civil servant, so they somehow managed. The parents sent him to school until about age 12, and then he apprenticed with his father as a corset maker. Um, he ran away from home in his late teens and served six months on an English privateer during the Seven Years' War. Uh, afterwards, he stayed in London, and for a while he attended lectures in natural philosophy and literature um, and other subjects. And while doing so, he hobnobbed with leading movers and shakers in London till his money ran out from his adventure at sea. And so um, he then, from then on, picked up various um you know, uh, trades and jobs to try to survive. Uh, but he certainly got his um, leading ideas out of the um, you know, London area in terms of meeting with uh, the radicals in particular, the English radicals in particular in London, and those who were proponents strongly of, European, of the European Enlightenment. So, um, in effect, after a couple of failed marriages and uh, business adventures that didn't go all that well, uh, Payne managed to be introduced to Benjamin Franklin in London, who was there at the time representing several colonies, and uh, got a letter of introduction from Benjamin Franklin, and he immigrated to America. Uh, he had to be carried off the ship when he arrived in Philadelphia in December of 1774 because he had gotten the fever, was unconscious, but he had these letters from Franklin, and that uh, that got him special attention. And um, it wasn't long before he met Robert Aitkins, a printer in Philadelphia, and in early 1775, he was already editing Aitkins' new gentleman's monthly magazine, The Pennsylvania Magazine. He published Common Sense in January 1776. Jet, talk about Common Sense. Why was that written? He reacted, uh, as did many, to the battles of Lexington and Concord. Um, and sometime during 1775, probably during the summer, <clears throat> Payne concluded that the separation uh, separation from uh, Britain and British control was the only solution for the American colony. So he wrote common sense to convince, uh, convince Americans that they had no choice but to seek independence instead of a continuation of their attempts at reconciliation. Uh, no one knows for sure who suggested that Payne write the pamphlet. That's been debated. Um, he did promise Benjamin Franklin that he would write a history of the American Revolution. By the way, he never got around to doing that. But what he sent uh, Franklin was obviously not that. And he sent Franklin the first copies of Common Sense, which was published in January of um, 1776. Um, there's also a role played a little bit by Benjamin Rush, who took some credit for the pamphlet, not only that uh, for the title, um, but Rush himself had attempted or thought about it, maybe writing such a piece 
advocating independence, but he had written an anti-slavery piece in Philadelphia a year or two before and uh, got uh, tremendous negative feedback from many people about that piece. He was advocating, you know, the release of um, slaves and that kind of thing. And so um, he knew Payne was a relatively unknown person, uh, decided he'd be a better choice. And uh, there is some evidence that he uh, pushed Payne to write the pamphlet, but nobody really knows for sure. Was common sense considered radical at the time? I think so. Um, Insofar as independence and creating a new order for the American society was considered radical, in other words, sort of a revamping of the social and political order, then he became a leading voice for American radicals seeking to sever ties with Britain. Uh, His main contribution of common sense, I believe, uh, was to um, kind of shift the argument. Uh, He he, uh, regarded the argument about uh, with Parliament about representation, about taxes, as for the most part missing the point And what Payne did instead is go for the king himself, and he blamed the king for America's problems. Through humor and biting satire, common sense set out to mock the king and make royalty and aristocracy look ridiculous to the colonists. Um, He, in a way, almost single-handedly changed the debate from a constitutional argument that uh, that the colonies had been having with Parliament over their role constitutionally and laid it in the doorstep of the king. And so part of this task was to upset the entire uh, philosophical foundations of the British constitution by doing so. And uh, he argued that uh, the much venerated idea of mixed government, balanced government that John Adams so admired uh, and Montesquieu so admired uh, in the British constitution of king, lords and commons Uh, was really um, something that had to be completely overturned. And he argued there was no higher authority, uh, um, you know, for for power, British sovereignty, or uh, for the English institutions. And the real real authority, he believed, lay at the feet of the people. And so he, I think the answer is yes to the question. He was considered radical even then, of course, among other radicals, um, for not just advocating independence, but for basically trying to redraw completely the philo- philosophical foundations um, underlying the British constitutional system. You mentioned that John Adams pretty vehemently disagreed with Thomas Paine. Uh, why? So, you know, it's funny. Adams confessed to his wife, Abigail, that he had admired Paine's uh, call for independence and Especially Adams was uh, admired and was a bit jealous of of Payne's manly writing style, which Adams told his wife he could not possibly duplicate. Uh, But he didn't like popular, he didn't like Payne's popular appeals for one thing, because Payne had lifted the debate from out of the Continental Congress and behind closed doors to the streets by publishing Common Sense, and that became overwhelmingly popular overnight. Uh, certainly one of the most um, you know, popular political pamphlets ever written in American history. So Adams then decided that Paine's ideas were, in a nutshell, far too democratical. That was his word. 
and uh, he shouldn't uh, therefore uh, ignore that. So he wrote his own pamphlet called Thoughts on Government, in part because some of the leading colonial leaders, such as Richard Henry Lee and others, had asked Adams to share their thoughts, share his thoughts with them while they were busy writing their own constitutions uh, at the you know colonial level, soon to become states, in 1776 during the spring. But he also, Adams also wrote it to kind of counter Paine's prescriptions for popular government. What parts of common sense inspired the Continental Congress to act? Well, certainly there was the call for independence itself, which uh, common sense inspired in the Congress. Uh, he jolted them. No longer could this subject just lie there waiting for them to conclude whether or not they were going to continue to seek re- reconciliation with Britain or you know, move forward toward independence itself. So I think common sense certainly played a pivotal role in that at that point in time. Um, his advocacy for a single house legislative body is perhaps the most important structural thing that Payne suggested in common sense that made its way over into the Articles of Confederation when it constructed, when the Continental Congress constructed the first national government. And then it obviously influenced some states, including Pennsylvania, um, this idea in particular in Pennsylvania of a single house legislative body. All of this based on the simple notions of majority rule and all of them based, uh, all these ideas based uh, on, you know, kind of a new way of thinking that the people were the most important uh, source of sovereign authority. Which of Payne's ideas were never implemented uh, by the Continental Congress or the new United States of America? So even in common sense, Payne was somewhat ahead of his time by calling for an Continental Conference, he called it. Actually, he was calling for a national constitution, constitutional convention at that time, <clears throat> at that time in uh, 1776. Um, he wanted that Continental Constitution or the so-called Continental Con- Conference to establish a national charter, which in effect would be a national constitution. Um, he did not think ordinary legislators ought to create a constitution. And instead, uh, he didn't get his way because the Continental Congress created the Articles Confederation directly. So government begat government. And that was something contrary to Payne's proposals. He he thought simply a different group of people, perhaps including legislators and others from government, but a different group of people ought to, in fact, lay the groundwork for a constitution. But that idea that he had at that point in time did not go forward. There's one more, and that is he expressed in common sense his idea for a strong national government, and he wanted that strong national government to have powers over the states. He wrote simply, let the assemblies be subject to the authority of a continental congress. So in effect, he subjugated the colonies and would-be states to a national authority. Uh, That itself obviously did not make it through the Articles of Confederation, which basically, even though it created a national Congress, gave it very few powers and withheld the most important powers, such as the power to tax and levy money or bring uh, revenue in and that kind of thing. Um, 
It's kind of interesting, though. James Madison also was a nationalist, somewhat in the order of pain. On the eve of the Continental Constitution, um, he wrote that in all cases whatsoever, uh, the national governments hold power over state legislatures. So he and Payne at that point in their time, and that point in their lives, were both strong nationalists. Um, eventually, both these ideas would gain some footing, but not until 1787, the new constitutional convention. And uh, so, in effect, at that point in time, um, they were uh, nationalists who were somewhat ahead of their time. Jed, what should the legacy of Payne be? Well, you know, most historians recognize, certainly, uh, Payne's uh, role in openly calling for independence and helping to spur the uh, movement toward uh, the Declaration of Independence. Uh, That's what most historians remember. And, uh, you know, and at that point, most then turned to other revolutionary era figures for their substantive contributions to building America's new political institutions. But I think Payne made contributions to those as well. Um, His ideas of popular sovereignty, for example, began to really take hold in many ways, takes a while for those, uh, that idea to really evolve, but it does. Uh, His notion of a federal scheme of state and national powers with the balance of powers lying with the national government Um, was something that would eventually come about in the Constitution of 1787. He hinted at judicial review, as I pointed out in this article that I've written most recently on on Payne and J.A.R., and uh, call for uh, a more, ultimately, a more egalitarian system of representation. Um, And uh, no matter how democratical, as Adams might have said, Um, Over time, uh, you know, the system of representation was more greatly democratized. So I think that's part of his legacy. And uh, I I think that, uh, you know, uh, boils down to the fact that he put a whole lot of emphasis on the people, though one must be guarded about that, because even Payne and even in his time, the people represented very very few in number who could actually participate in elections and, and uh, help govern the nation. How does this article help us understand the revolutionary era better? You know, many of the founders believe that the common good was the real ultimate purpose of ruling and exercising authority over individual self-interest. And uh, that good government should always strive to try to achieve the common good. Uh, So did Payne. I'll read one quote from my article uh, that Payne wrote about his idea of the, you know, legislative authority, the majority, the public good, and that sort of thing. And here goes. My idea of a single legislature was always founded on a hope that whatever personal parties there might be in the state, they would all unite and agree in the general principles of good government, that these party differences would be dropped at the threshold of the state house, and that the public good, or the good of the whole, would be the governing principle of the legislature. But when party operates to produce party laws, a single house is a single person. And subject to the haste 
rashness and passion of individual sovereignty. At least it is an aristocracy. So it in some ways sounds pretty quaint today, to be honest. I mean, this idea of a public good being the number one thing that political parties are trying to achieve. Um, it's pretty hard for us today to uh, make that case, I think. But in that time, um, it was already beginning to be recognized that that kind of um, self-interest would most likely align with a strong majority interest or a strong partisan group. And so the founders were wary about it. Madison wrote his famous Federalist Number 10 exactly on that subject. What to do about an unbridled majority if you, in fact, have a democracy? And the democracy, therefore, leads to, you know, a particular party in power uh, that trumps all the powers of anyone else. So I think Paine's early advocacy of popular government um, and his idea that we ought to uh, while we find a way to be more egalitarian and find a way to uh, open up political participation to more and more people, um, it nevertheless led to uh, a debate that is continuing to this day uh, to try to find the balance uh, between um, a democratic rule and, uh, and an unbridled majority. Jack Connor, thanks again. Thank you very much. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.